0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble!
1: Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk Radio Show about Opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, spurred on by Becky Hammond becoming the first woman to act as a head coach in a regular season NBA game. We shout out some of the women who took over leadership roles in the second half of 2020. And then, in an article for middleclassartist.com, Cindy Sadler argues that weight bias in opera is the last socially acceptable form of discrimination. The contralto, stage director, administrator, author, and advocate Goes inside the huddle with Oliver and Ashley, plus two-minute drill. Roberto is an officer of the Legion d'honneur, and Jane is a dame. We're gonna get to that towards the end of the show. It's show 250, by the way, if you've been with us from the beginning, 250 of the books. Uh Oliver, one word to describe your holiday. Cheese. Weston Williams, one word for your holiday.
2: Esoteric.
1: Matt Cummings, one word for your holiday.
2: Laid back.
1: And Ashley Hardgrave, one word.
3: Freestyle.
0: (laughs) Ooh. A lot of swimming.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. So much swimming.
1: To St. Petersburg. One word (laughs) for my holiday. It's going to be two words. Propane heater. Let's talk some opera.
2: Chalk Talk on Opera Box score. I didn't realize, George, that you were uh, a fan of King of the Hill.
1: I don't know what that is. Last week, (laughs) Becky Hammond, 43, took over coaching the San Antonio Spurs mid-game for the ejected Greg Popovich. Now, Hammond is a six-time All-Star in the WNBA with 16 seasons under her belt. Uh, First woman hired to be a full-time coaching staff rep in the NBA. That's since 2014. Pop gets kicked out of the game in San Antonio. Sorry, Dallas, but we're going to San Antonio for this story. And what a spectacular evening it was. She talked a lot about the game afterwards. The real takeaway, what she said was, I just wish we would have won this game. And, of course, Popovich, just the type of guy who would uh, get kicked out and then have nothing but support for one of his assistant coaches. Popovich is like the 2000s version of the zen-like Phil Jackson from the Bulls' 90s era.
4: Okay, wait a That I'm, was a wildly I, I'm specific I'm just reference. now understanding this story. So she's not the full-time coach. She's now just like a... She she's on just, the
3: coaching staff. Uh, she's, but she's
4: not like the head coach.
3: She wasn't named as a head coach, no. Yeah. But through,
4: not yet.
3: Uh, <laughs> not yet, not yet. But through an emotional outburst after which Pop was ejected Wait a from second, a game, I thought
4: women were emotional.
3: That's what I was getting at, is that we always talk about how it's the women that are so emotional, but Pop's the one that gets knocked out of the game for his emotions, and then the woman has to come in and clean up the mess. So once again, my theory, my quote, let the women do the work.
1: So how does this relate? Well, you'll recall that at the end of 2019, Unsun Kim took over as the music director at San Francisco Opera. Cecilia Bartoli took over as the artistic director in Monte Carlo. This inspired us on the show this week to recap some of the women who took over prominent leadership roles in 2020, specifically the second half of 2020. And actually, uh, we would start, I think, with the London Philharmonic, with uh, Christina Rocca becoming the new artistic director. That was kind of a a late entry, perhaps June is when that uh news came out
0: weston you there, there was something... some other news that kind of took up most of the headlines <laughs> there, there were there were a few things going on
2: in fairness um but yeah i mean one one of the things i was doing uh, I, I helped oliver out sort of compiling uh this list and it really was remarkable that since you know late 2019 um and despite the pandemic um or maybe because of um You see way more women being moving into these leadership roles, these administrative roles, these music director roles, uh, in a really active way. Because we've always pointed out, you know, on the show how uh, opera singers have a tendency to put their uh, people of color, their women, you know, uh, on stage and the administrative side, the people who can actually pick seasons and actually affect what's chosen for the opera is always like it, it, it's still old white men. But this past year, despite the pandemic, you actually see a lot of women actually taking on these roles, being given these roles um, in order in these really hard times. I mean. A rough time to get appointed to uh, some of these positions. Uh, But uh, you really see, I think, a dramatic sort of shift in um, the way opera companies are hiring. Maybe. Fingers crossed. We'll see how well it bears out. But I wanted to uh, call attention to the July announcement of Claire Burevac, who was appointed the general director of the New New Orleans Opera, um, effective uh, in September of this year. She's the first woman to hold the role of the company. Uh, She was trained as a violinist initially, but she got her start in opera as a stage manager. She worked in Seattle. And Portland, uh, one particularly interesting project she did in Portland was the company's first multilingual production, which was a Spanish and English translation of the Barber of Seville, which is exactly the kind of outreach that we need to ensure that opera remains a relevant art form for the communities that experience it. And, um, and so it's not just this separate thing. And I I think that that sort of, uh, innovation brought to the Southeast, particularly um, as I, as a member of uh, a native of the Southeast, I really, really appreciate that level. And I hope she brings it forward and I'm sure she will uh, uh, that level of community engagement, which is so lacking in that region.
1: Matt Cummings, what was somebody on your radar?
0: Yeah, I think it was that same week Charlottesville opera in Virginia announced their new general director uh, to be Christina Deaton DeMorea, who was, he was a Chicago local uh, she worked for a really long time with the Chicago Children's Choir, and I'm sure all of you are out there saying, but wait, this is an opera podcast. What does a <laughs> children's choir have to do with it? And uh, Chicago Children's Choir, if you're not familiar with it, if you're not local to Chicago, is a humongous organization. It serves mm-hmm. over 5,000 children over all 57 of Chicago's zip codes, uh, and it is for many, it it is Fiercely dedicated to musical education for students, where it may be the only chance that they get to have that. Uh, and she served as both the executive director and chief operating office, op- op- chief operating officer of this humongous organization. And during her tenure, she set new standards for ex- excellence, substantially expanded programs. Uh, increased revenue generation she has uh, she trained as a singer and also worked for a long time in capital and arts administration just I mean the two things that you really need to run an opera company (laughs) she's got proven results she and particularly when it comes to reaching out to communities who don't get a lot of attention from the opera world and drawing in students who are and helping to spark interest and that I think is a great move
1: uh, Matt, tell us also about the hire in San Francisco, which happened in August.
0: Yes. Yeah, speaking of speaking of education, uh, at San Francisco Opera, the San Francisco Opera Center, the training program that includes the famous Marilla Apprenticeship Program, um, Carrie Ann Matheson was, will be joining, uh, has already joined at this point, as the artistic director of that program, uh, she was brought on in the wake of the retirement of longtime director of the Opera Center, Sherry Greenwald, who was who is a beloved and and very admired educator and artist uh, by singers really across the spectrum uh, and Matheson, carrie Ann Matheson herself has come up on this podcast recently um, when we were talking to uh, Oliver's new bay Benjamin Berenheim, Uh, because <laughs> she has a prolific career as a pianist. She plays a number of recitals. She worked on the coaching staff of the Metropolitan Opera and Opera Zurich. She also works as a conductor. She works as a coach. She, I mean, she can do it all and she's going to get to, uh, and She's given a number of interviews where she talks about her educational philosophy and just about how her she sees the role of an instructor in this young artist program, in young artist programs like these, to help build the house. You know, you've got the, stru- the structure of the house being the notes, the rhythms, but also helping to encourage singers to put their own individual flair into their performances. And that is not something that many... Training programs really like to encourage. I would say it. It they can often seem kind of factory like or cookie cutter to be like, what's the quickest way I can get the most success possible? And she is all about you know helping to grow the artist as a whole, being healthy mentally as well as physically, as well as musically, as well as vocally. Uh, And she's got the chops to back it up. Uh, That passion really shines through in any interview you read with her. Her colleagues speak glowingly of her. She's worked with some of the greatest names in music, like Joyce Di Donato, Benjamin Bernheim, like I said, Jonas Kaufman, Yannick Segan. Like she, this is a great get for San Francisco. And she, I, I think that she and the, the general director, who's uh, Marcus, uh, what's his name? Ah, they're, they're bringing on a general director also, who's a, a, a singer to help co-run this program, but they are just going to be able to take it and run with it and bring it into the 21st century. Yeah. he's, he's a, a
4: white dude we don't need to know his name
0: anymore so <laughs> he's not that important anymore <laughs> well,
1: Ma- <laughs> Matheson Thank you for your service markets is a great get for San Francisco Opera Center obviously I'm bi- biased being a, a marilini myself um sherry Gretawald those are extremely big shoes to fill but I mean I what I love about the Matheson appointment and her philosophy is this idea of empowering artists to know their own opinions and that their individual talents are worthy of attention. I think that is going to take these artists, uh, hopefully it's going to, you know, redefine what artist programs are are capable of. As we move to the end of August, 2020 and into the beginning of September, also heading overseas, two very important appointments. The first one of Andrea Moses to take over the Deutsches Nationaltheater in Weimar. Germany, of course, has two national theaters, one in Mannheim and the other in Weimar. So this is an appointment which is extremely uh, important to... Ha- it sets the tone for what sort of art Germany as a country and a culture is going to be making in the coming years. Now, I will admit, I saw Moses' production of Schutz a couple years ago. I was not thrilled by it. However... Her track record most recently, uh, a leading director in Stuttgart uh, under the team with Jossi Wieler. And she starts in Weimar in the 21-22 season. Secondly, moving over to Austria, Lotte de Beer, the uh, Dutch uh, woman taking over at the Wiener uh, Volksoper. And that starts in September of 21, uh, succeeding Robert Meyer, who's been there since 2007. So something really being shook up now in uh, Vienna. And you know, I mean, Vienna kind of is the gold standard. If it if it isn't for you, at least it is for me as well. The Beer, <laughs> noted for work at operfront which produces small-scale experimental works, in Vienna also worked at Theater under Wien, Kammeroper, Staatsoper. Track record is there. I cannot wait to see what she does with a house like the Folks Opera, with the rep like the Folks Opera. Ashley, let's bring it back to the US. She was on the show for us in October. This is a month after her appointment in Fort Worth.
3: Uh, that is correct. We are talking about the one, the only, the legend, Ms. Afton Battle. Uh, she is the first black female general director for Fort Worth Opera. Uh, she is a native Texan, so in a lot of ways she's coming home. She's got experience on a whole bunch of levels. She's a singer and she's worked in the art and the theater and the ballet worlds before coming back to music. Um, I would definitely encourage you to both just because it's awesome and she's wonderful and you want to be inspired, go back to our episode. It's 238 in our feed uh, where we talk to her. And she speaks about how part of her approach there – I mean, she hit the ground running. She was there in September. She was Mm -hmm. working in September. She hit the ground running, and she said, quote, we're here to serve our community. So she's really – bringing the opera house out into the streets and having it connect with all of the different local organizations that make up the rest of that community, which I think is really wonderful. Uh, you know, she's started this thing that is, you know, FWO Go, or FWO as they call it sometimes. It's a mobile opera project. Uh, it has things like the Children's Opera Stone Soup. It had this really cool thing, Holiday in the Garden, where they had a big outdoor event, which you can do in Texas in December, uh, that had, like, a tree farm and food trucks and all this really cool stuff. They did an event at a YMCA where they were doing a food giveaway. And my personal favorite of the Fuego's was something called Voices for Votes. Uh, They put a bunch of singers and a pianist on a flatbed truck and they drove it around to all of the long lines for people waiting to vote in November in Fort Ah. Worth and performed for them. Uh, And it was just a really cool way for them to connect with the community. She's really inspirational. She really gets what needs to be... I was going to say changed, but I will say improved uh, about the art form of opera and how it relates to the community and most specifically the communities uh, of of Dallas and Fort Worth. So it's a good get for them. She is, y'all, she's so boss. She's so great. Just (laughs) please, please keep watching her. This is, this is a woman to watch and she's really going to be a big game changer for opera in the South.
1: Weston, one of the appointments which put sort of two positions into one body was in Philadelphia.
2: Yes, um, so Philadelphia, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra, um, uh, decided to grab themselves a new principal guest conductor. Um, um but the, the person they picked is just really, really exciting. It's, it's Natalie Stutzmann, who's both a, uh, French contralto and a conductor, and sometimes she's both. I don't, there, there's something so exciting to me when, uh, I see a singer go into conducting because I always feel like they 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 really bring something to the table that others don't have. I, I feel like, you know, most uh, usually the pipeline is like, you know, a pianist becomes a conductor, sometimes
0: um, a violinist, sometimes yeah.
2: a violinist if you're feeling fancy. But, you know, every time I see some particularly a woman conductor, which is still sadly a rarity, um. um uh, like Stutzmann come in here and really bring all of that operatic training knowing what should be happening in the pit and on the stage and just bringing out the best of both possible worlds is just such an exciting prospect to me. Even though the Philadelphia Orchestra is not itself, you know, uh, an opera company, I would not be surprised if we see a little bit of that trickling down into uh, the uh, 2021-2022 season, which is when she's going to be taking over, which is incidentally the same season as her conducting debut at the Met if the Met hasn't been torn apart by uh, union and management negotiations by them.
1: <laughs> We're going to get to that in the two minute drill. We're going to get to opera theater of St. Louis in the two minute drill, but Oliver, tell us about the appointment out of there.
4: Well, Yvette Loynaz, um has been named. Uh, what is the, t- what is her, her D- director
2: role? of artistic administration? I believe
4: she's doing the hiring and the firing uh, of artists. Um, she started as a singer. She made her bones as a singer. She sang at Caramore, Glimmerglass, Aspen. Uh, she is originally from Miami, and she's Cuban-American, and she's bilingual, I understand. I, mm-hmm. I, she probably speaks more than just Spanish, but, you know, bilinguality comes into play with, um, I think, some of the artistic decisions she's going to make when she's at Opera Theater St. Louis. Uh, She has a degree in uh, a postgraduate degree from the opera studio in Belgium, the Vlandern in Ghent, Belgium. And as she began to transition into administration, she was a fundraiser for the New World Symphony, Individual Giving. So she's making her bones as a singer. She's making her bones in administration. So So many bones. She has so many bones. And they're in Spanish, too. (laughs) Uh, Now she's she's at Opera Theater St. Louis, and we're going to talk about Opera Theater uh, in the Two Minute Drill, and they have an exciting new initiative. So maybe she had a say in that because it's clear that she is somebody who cares a lot about
0: diversity.
1: Matt Cummings, wrap it up for us as we go foreign one more time into Canada.
0: Yeah, both foreign and very non-traditional with early music, Vancouver uh, who announced that Susie LeBlanc is their first female artistic and executive director? Uh, she is a Canadian soprano, an early music specialist. I would, I, I would even go so far as to say early and new music specialist. Those are, you know, those are specialties that tend to go together. Uh, and she has a very non-traditional path to becoming a singer in the first place. She started as a gymnast and has performed with folk ensembles. There's a folk ensemble that she record that that she's made recordings with with called Mellosphere. Which is uh, which is dedicated to Acadian folk music, and she was actually awarded the Order of Canada for contributing to the development of early period music and Acadian culture. Is the Uh, Order
2: of Canada just like a
0: bronzed maple leaf? uh, At least bronze. I mean, (laughs) at least at least no one wants to be no one wants to be rude enough to ask for silver or gold, but.
1: It's a hockey puck. So excited to see how these fantastic administrators make an impact. Many of course have already been making an impact as we've referred to in the segment.
4: Well, not getting emotional.
3: <laughs> Good job, gentlemen. I'll report back to the others so that you guys can handle it.
1: Inside the huddle with Cindy Sather coming up in just 1 second, I want to talk a little more sports. Ashley Tell us about the Bears' woes.
3: Oh, you mean how they lost to the Packers twice in six weeks and they still managed to make the playoffs because the NFC is that bad? That's oh, it. Man. That's the story. That's
1: the, the whole story. The, the NFC is so dreadful. Washington, the Washington football team is 7-9 and nine and yet made the, made the playoffs. I, I don't understand this. Matt, your Steelers wet the bed against the Browns, allowing them into the playoffs for the first time in 20 years.
0: They just wanted to, you know, give them a little bit to get them going, but always leave them wanting more. <laughs> <laughs> just like Gypsy Rose Lee. <laughs> That's how That's... I talk about sports is through classic Broadway music halls. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Middle class
4: artists is something that we are always referring to. And just as we were getting to wrap up our year and, and think about Messiahs and uh, our last show of 2020, um, a really interesting piece came out by Cindy Sadler. Um, and it's a shame that it, it it came out so late in the year and it didn't get, I think, enough amplification so i thought we should definitely bookmark that one to talk about when we came back in january if you are a professional singer you probably already have heard of cindy sadler she is one of the moderators of the new forum for classical singers on facebook the new uh, new forum for <laughs> the new singers. forum um she has done a lot are we of up to ad- three news now
2: not yet
3: we're almost there
4: uh, she's also known for her advocacy and her teaching. Uh, she's always interested in developing young singers and helping them understand the career. She's been a blogger for I don't know how many years. Uh, Metsa with Character is the name of her blog. Uh, she's a stage director and she's a singer. So she's just been putting herself out there in so many ways. And this piece is very personal. It's about weight bias. And uh, yeah, we, we literally dive right in. And um, she does not hold back. Will you help us out by giving us a couple of ground rules or boundaries about how we can talk about this and not, um, you know, demonstrate implicit bias in our language?
5: Well, you know, that I I will say, first of all, I'm not the expert on that. Mm -hmm. I think the best way to avoid implicit bias is to simply, one size doesn't fit all when it comes Mm -hmm. to that. You have to ask the person you're talking to what they're comfortable. And there isn't a standard word, you know, among the fat or plus-sized community, whatever you want to call them. Um, some people are comfortable with one thing; some with others. I I know that in the fat activist community, um, the word "fat" is considered to be neutral. It is it's a descriptor. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't have morality attached to it, and so. I, for that reason, I chose to use that word a lot in the article that I wrote. Um, but I think if somebody just walked up to me and said, hey, you're fat, that would have a very different uh, meaning. Because I think most of society does see it as a pejorative, and it shouldn't be. It should be a descriptor.
4: Well, are there terms that are a little bit more neutral that are, are like definitely acceptable, like full figured or plus size I'm- or as,
5: there's lots of euphemisms. Um, the problem—they're problematic because almost all of them, at, in some capacity, are intended as an insult. Mm-hmm. So it depends on who says it and how and in what context. It's—it's it's complicated. So um, you know, and there's there's a certain part of me that says, well, "Why should you even address somebody? You shouldn't address somebody personally about it anyway. It's none of your business." But you know, if you're talking, if you're just you know for practical matters, if you're discussing it, I think saying. Um, you know, uh, plus size is, is pretty standard. Um, you know, everybody knows what that means. Um, curvy is a positive way of saying it. Curvy has I- in the context of particularly women has come to be a, a term that most people accept and is, is sort of a positive way of saying it. I don't mind either of those, um, I wouldn't mind fat in the right context. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that's something I've been working on just to reclaim for myself and just you know, just to say, it's not a pejorative, it's just a description. So um, I'm sorry, I can't be more straightforward with you. No, about that's, that. that's okay. I, it's, I, it's, it's actually not something I've given a great deal of thought to, believe it or not.
3: No, I, I think it's it's good. Well, first of all, these are the conversations that need to be had. and And the fact that this isn't all figured out yet kind of as an indicator of where we are and having sort of a larger discussion about this. I've heard people use plus size. I've heard people sort of lean more on terms that are used in the, in the, the garment and the fabric industry and say extended size, which I'm sure, fine. I mean, if that works for you, great. Um, you, you mentioned this article and um, we spoke about this a little bit off mic and I wanted to ask you, now that we have our viewers with us, um, can you tell us a little bit about how this article kind of came to be? Did it, did it start as something else?
5: Yes, I'm, I'm very tickled about this. Um, <laughs> I am currently in graduate school for a master's in arts administration at Goucher College, and I wrote it last semester for my performing arts management class. Um, our teacher, Sarah Lawrence, was very, very uh, big on talking about diversity. But one of the things that I noticed that we didn't really address was body diversity or age diversity on the stage. We did talk about disability, which was really important. I had never heard anybody bring that up in terms of body diversity before. And I think that even though we're here to talk about body diversity mainly in terms of, of weight bias, I think it's really important to acknowledge that disability on stage is also not represented. It's probably the least represented of all of the different types of diversity we need to talk about. And, you know, I just want to give a shout out to that with the idea that that, to me, that goes along with the whole idea of body diversity. So I wanted to write a paper about all of those things, but it was only a 10 page paper. So, uh, there wasn't room. <laughs> and <laughs> I decided to, that I would set that aside. Maybe that'll be my major paper. And I decided to write this art, this, this paper instead. And so then I published a little bit of it on the new, new forum for classical singers, which is a 13,000 plus Facebook group for uh, singers. Don't remind um, us yeah and and (laughs) i have been a i've been a moderator of it god help me since 2012. (laughs) Um, and um you know so i posted something about there on there i also drew from people um drew from from uh, that community to get anecdotes. I often go to them because there's all these singers and people in peripheral careers there to talk to. So, you know, I'll say, hey guys, I'm writing an article about whatever and and then people will very generously tell me their stories. Um, so I, I got pages and pages and pages of stories, much more than I could actually use and they were heartbreaking a lot of the time. Um, but um, so, Anyway, Zach Finkelstein saw that and wrote me and said, hey, Cindy, and he'd been asking me to write something for him anyway. And he said, hey, let's publish this article and I'll pay you. And I was like, I'm getting paid to write a paper for class. Yay.
4: (laughs) So the abstract of the piece for middle-class artists is that this bias uh, against people who are different body sizes um, actually damages the business. And um, from audiences not seeing themselves represented on stage, to how um, young artists uh, and professional artists are treated and maybe not given opportunities and many other points along the way. But um, one of the arguments you make is that uh, marketing campaigns perpetuate this bias. Um, Can you talk to me about some marketing campaigns that show this and you don't have to name opera companies but just so we can illustrate this point for our audience right this is is hurtful to our community yeah
5: i will not name any names um well just to start off generally one of the things that you very often see with opera marketing campaigns is that um they will hire models Mm. to to do the the
0: shoots for i know i'm booked
5: gosh
4: i'm sorry (laughs) there's like so
5: many of these um, out there and it just sort of happens on a regular basis. And I remember the first time I saw one and I kind of went, I've never seen a a Rosina that looks like that. You know, sure, there's lots of gorgeous girls out there, but you know, you can tell that's a model and I, I don't get what the point of that is. It's, to me, it's almost like false advertising. I mean, there are many gorgeous singers in opera, if gorgeous is what you're looking for choose one of them and by the way fat is not exclusive is not excluded from gorgeous fat can be absolutely beautiful too and that's one of the things that that is important to me that you know as an arts administrator as a writer as, as an advocate is to normalize the idea that Old people fall in love, fat people fall in love, short people fall in love, people of different races and colors have adventures. It's not just young, skinny, Eurocentric people. And I think that, you know, that's that's a big focus of the article as well. But you asked about marketing campaigns, so back to that. Sorry, it's hard to keep me off the soapbox.
3: Um, <laughs> Welcome to my world, come sit next to me. <laughs> Um,
5: so, so the modeling thing is one, um, another thing that I have been told, I haven't seen this, uh, personally, but I've been told through by other singers that they have, and these are not, by the way, singers who were any way overweight, um, that, that companies would Photoshop their photos, they use their photos in the marketing, but they Photoshop them to make them look thinner. I personally had a company A very beloved company that hired me many times um, asked me for a picture of one of my signature roles. And instead of taking the most recent one, which was probably had the best production values and had the best um, costume and, you know, lighting and everything. They took the oldest one, which was like practically an amateur set because I was the skinniest in that one. And the photo wasn't even a professional photo, but they'd rather have that than show me, you know, in this other, you know, even better production values, even though I I was fatter. And by the way, fatter thin had nothing to do with that character. That character could be played by anybody type. So, you know, that's, that's just one of the ways. And it's, you know, it's a microaggression because it's saying to the, performer, you're not good enough the way you are. We're afraid you won't sell and we're not going to take the time to make you look as beautiful as we want you to look. We're just going to alter an image or we're going to use somebody else. And that's happened too. I've heard from singers who have, who were in the quote unquote A cast, whose. Photos didn't appear in the advertising. They put the skinnier B-Cast singer in. Mm-hmm. Um, but And then there's, those are sort of the generalities, but there's a couple of particularly egregious campaigns. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts. Um, so there was this one, and a bunch of people are going to know exactly which one I'm talking about, even though I'm not going to name names, but there was a campaign where this opera company had a truly beautiful singer, And I feel really bad for her that she got mixed up in this. I don't think any of the backlash was directed at her. But they put a picture of, you know, that that stereotypical picture of the fat lady in the breastplate and, you know, the fat Brunhilde. And they always give her, like, bad drag queen makeup. They always make her look ugly. I mean, nobody ever makes her look like voluptuous, Christine Gerke kind of gorgeous Brunhilde. But, you know, they make her look like, you know. Somebody in a community theater production, with no budget, you know, um, and and they juxtaposed that and said something along the lines of, you know, if you you think this is opera, no, this is opera, and then they show their beautiful, gorgeous singer. Well, that got a big backlash, um, at least from the singing community, because I remember all the memes that went around with people, you know, showing off themselves and saying, "Hey, this is also opera." Um, <laughs> So, and, and the person who created the campaign fortunately realized the mistake and pulled it. But, you know, the damage was done. He, that person was not in favor with singers for a long time. Um, and another one was, and this was in the past, and this was a bigger opera company that had a slogan that was something along the lines of, we make opera worth seeing. So in other words, hey, you're not going to see any of those fatties on our stage because that's almost always what they mean yeah. they don't mean you're you're not going to see anybody who isn't Hollywood beautiful they mean you're not going to see fat people on our stage so you know let's just call it what it is
3: that is yeah I mean uh-huh yeah all I can do <laughs> is nod. I remember each of these campaigns. And I remember how small or rather unsmall it made me feel as I saw those, especially training as an artist to go to these big leagues. Um, I love what you said a moment ago about uh, about fat not being excluded from the notion of gorgeous. Uh, and I wanna turn a little bit and, and talk about another thing that can often be excluded uh, fr- that fat can be excluded from, and that's that's fat and healthy. Uh, there, there are plenty of people that are pictures of health, but would be considered by someone's standards as, as fat. And that often goes into you know weight bias and training and young artist programs and the way that stage directors cast. Um, I appreciate that uh, you made the point about thin bodies being assumed to be the healthy ones, the better movers, the better actors. Um, I would like to give you the opportunity to talk about people who sort of defy that notion, people who are outstanding performers, but might not be considered conventionally thin and the thin version of healthy. Okay. Well, Ashley,
5: (laughs) let me preface this by saying, I don't mean to attack you. Ah. Look at this question. uh, You know, I thought about this question. And as I was trying to think of these people, and I mean, I can think of those people. I thought, wait a minute, would we ask that question of another marginalized community? And you know, would we say? I'm
4: going to say right now. It's my question. <laughs> okay,
5: I'm sorry. All right. It's like my question. And please don't think I'm attacking anybody. This is just this is just me thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, thank you. There's That's what this is for. Certainly yeah. no rancor on my part at all. Um, I would we ask a question like that of some other marginalized community? Would we say, "Can you give me examples of people who are really articulate and defy that stereotype"? No, we wouldn't, because that would be offensive. And so to me, what I'm really happy that you asked this question, because it was actually a light bulb moment for me to say, this is the whole thing about otherness. This is is making those people other, even though they're fat, they do this, they can move. No, fat people are not any different they they're not they don't have different abilities than skinny people per se it's individual i cannot get on my knees at this point because i injured myself at the gym years ago and then tore a meniscus oh if you just looked at me you would think uh you know she's not a spring chicken and she's pretty fat so maybe she can't get up and down off her knees easily i can't now but It's only been like the last five years that that's been the case. And I've been a big girl my whole career with a very, very short respite where I lost a lot of weight and then I slowly gained it all back. Um, But I, I have always been an athletic fat person and I still go out and hike with my husband. You know, we, that's, that's our hobby. Us two, you know, chubby people are out there hiking and having a good time. Um, And so I, I don't think that that's really, I think that when, when we look at a question like that, we have to say, why are we asking that? Why do we have to prove? Or what are we trying to prove? And to whom are we trying to prove it? So I think the better question is, why do we want to ask questions like that about fat people? Why do we have to defend them? Why do we have to defend them on stage? Why is the director not creative enough to, if they, or let me let me rephrase that. If a director is creative enough to work around, okay, I'll give you an example. Mark Delaman, great, great Verdi baritone. I've worked with him a number of times before he got to be the big deal. And I've worked with him a little bit afterwards. Lovely guy. The last time I saw him, he had just torn a meniscus and was in a lot of pain and was on a set that required him to go up and down stairs. And having had a torn meniscus myself, I can tell you that's, that's a lot of pain. And he just bravoed his way through it. Um, But, you know, I'm sure the director made some accommodations for him. He couldn't kneel with that leg. Nobody said uh, to Stephanie Blythe, who was also in the same production, you know, nobody was, was going to... They were gonna make accommodations for her because she's a big deal and, sh- and she's a fantastic performer and you don't mess with her. And she makes that pretty clear in a very lovely way. Um, but you know somebody who is at the regional level, who's building their career or isn't well-established yet and isn't singing in a, in a big house, they're not gonna necessarily get those accommodations made for them, why not? Why can't we make an accommodation for a singer who is, um, you know, who uses a wheelchair? There were people who used a wheelchair in the 1800s. You know, why don't we make accommodations for singers who are partially deaf? Because there are singers who are partially deaf out there having careers right now. Of course, they don't talk about it very much. There are blind singers having careers. Um, There are fat singers and thin singers and all everything in between. Um, why are we so committed to showing such a narrow range of humanity on the stage? And why are we so committed to a repertoire that traditionally has shown that and told stories about those people? We're coming out of a pandemic. The opera world, the arts world has been shook. We all know that we there's all this talk about how we're going to rebuild. What are we going to do? How, you know, we have we have a lot of work to do to come back. This is the perfect time to fix this stuff. And not only that, but you know, we all know that that audience building is a challenge. And yet, why then? And this is what this is where the damage to the profession comes in, to the arts comes in. We insist on not representing. We fight with our boards and our patrons over representation. And I'm talking about all kinds of representation, not just weight bias, because it's all part of the same piece. Um, we fight with the, these people over it and yet we still can't get them to give us enough money. And we're shutting out those audiences because they, young audiences are very smart. The the kids that are coming up in the generations after mine, and you know, a couple of generations after mine, they're smart and they have really different values. They don't have anything to lose the way my generation did. You know, I st- I was really lucky to be you know one of the, kind of those last generations that got out and when you could still start a career um, without being in so much debt. And now they're all in debt, and now they're all you know they they will never be able to buy a house or um, you know do some of the things that we took for granted. So they don't have anything to lose, and they're the social justice generation, and they're not having it. And this is one of the things I adore about the young people of today. They are not having any of that BS. They want to see representation on stage. Why aren't we giving them that? Why aren't we engaging them that way? I run a program called Spotlight on Opera. This is our 15th season this year. Um, and I have had students say to me, I don't wanna play that role. I mean, she just, she's, she's a, she just gets walked all over. Um, you know, I, I'm not interested in playing roles like that. I'm not interested in, in my character being sexually harassed on stage. Um, and, and, you know, my answer to that is if we're doing traditional repertoire, we have to find a way to do that, that illustrates the message we want to illustrate. Um, that's, that's a very big thing for me. It has been in my own career as well. Um, but you know, they're just, they don't want it anymore. So we have to find ways to bring them in and, and give them the representation that they want and deserve. And it's healthier, not just for the performing arts, not just for opera, but for society. Agreed.
4: So maybe the question should have been, um, can you tell us who's mediocre out there? <laughs> <laughs> let's just who are the singers out there that don't deserve to be on stage regardless of what category we might put them into no, no no i'm just kidding um all right so we are almost running out of time but i have one more question for you is there something that you would prefer we would have asked you huh
5: Um, Well, you know, one thing that we didn't address that I'd really like to get in there before we before we leave is the effect of weight bias and and body diversity bias on young singers. And it is it's a heavy burden, not only psychologically, uh, but also in terms of their vocal technique. I spoke to many singers who said that they had been forced into singing repertoire that was inappropriate for them, which is damaging. Um, ashley you you had that experience I was oh, I was oh, stunned oh. to see how many people had that but you know it's focal malpractice these kids are spending thousands of dollars they're going into debt for their music degrees which I, <laughs> think, I think is a terrible idea by the way um, but it's easy for me to say that because I didn't have to do it um, but you know and then they come out and they're not their technique is not usable and in fact it is so unusable that they have to spend years to oh. fix and it's just unconscionable that teachers would do this. And I understand why they do, because they're trying to give the student their best shot at having a career. But how messed up is that? You know, just because you're five, two and a tenor with a leading man voice, or you're bald and a tenor, you know, and, and, and people don't want to cast you as a leading man because you're short. That's another example of how, you know, how how body diversity works against or the lack of the lack of normalization of body diversity works against people. So, I mean, obviously, I have a whole lot to say about that. (laughs) I I could talk your ears off for a lot more time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I would just like to leave people with the idea that, you know, to think about it. The arts are meant to be for everyone. They're also meant to be controversial and thought provoking and a force for change in society. And historically they have been. And for a long time in the arts, we've been saying diversity, diversity, diversity. Every arts organization in the world, you know, has some sort of Black Lives Matter statement on their website, but who's putting their money where their mouth is? And, and I think that we need to be, as arts administrators, as singers, as, as artists, um, as art lovers, we need to be demanding this of ourselves, of the companies that we patronize. Um, we need to be educating those who need a little education. And we need to be making this a reality. We need to put that representation on the stage. And I personally believe that that is what opera in the 21st century looks like
4: well cindy sadler people can read the article at middleclassartist.com we've been talking about that website forever now so they know where to find it and they can also learn more about you at cindysadler.com.
5: yes and I, I if i may just plug i have Please. a lot of articles there on topics uh, that are germane to the arts um not shy about giving my opinions, surprisingly
4: <laughs> enough. Clearly.
5: <laughs> we love it. Our so, kind of people. So yeah. Gotta wipe, gotta I, wipe the I egg off my
4: face of after stuff. this.
5: I, I write a lot for young artists and like how-tos and try to demystify the, the business for people. So I invite them to it's free. It's all on there on my on my blog on my website. So check it out.
4: Well, thank you for coming onto Opera Box Score. Yes.
5: Thanks, Thanks for inviting me. This was so much fun.
0: This just in, the two-minute drill.
1: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this
3: week. The Met Orchestra Musicians' Union have responded to the Metropolitan Opera's decision to use non-union musicians for its New Year's Eve gala. In the statement, union president Adam Krauthammer says, Let's be clear, hiring non-Met musicians under the banner of the Metropolitan Opera and outsourcing the orchestra's work is an attack on the Met as an artistic institution and an insult to the very artists who work there.
2: New York City Opera's Musicians' Union has settled with the beleaguered company's management. NYCO committee chair Mark Schumann said, quote, This is an excellent example of what can be achieved when we act together as a union.
4: In other NYCO news, City Opera has released Unzumo in Moscata. The promotion serves as a fundraiser for NYCO and features a star-studded lineup of singers, including Elizabeth Futral, Latanya Moore, Patricia Reset, Samuel Ramey, Paulo Jot, Carol Vanis, Rolando Villazon, Frederick von Stada, And Martina Arroyo.
0: Splendidissimo. (laughs) Opera Theatre of St. Louis is launching a fellowship program to recruit and train arts administrators of color. Of the three named fellows, two are black and one is Latina. Chandler Johnson will work in in artistic administration. Quentin Beverly in fundraising, and Leanne Alvarado in general administration. Katerina
2: Wagner, intendantin of the Bayreuther Festspiele, has said that she was pleased with the intention of the German federal government to review the festival's administration practices. Structural issues? In my Wagner Festival? It's more likely than you
3: think. Nine! The Sydney Opera House has resumed performances, reopening with The Merry Widow. Audiences are obliged to wear masks and capacity is capped at 75%. Artistic director Lyndon Terracini said, walking back into the theater was a very emotional time for everyone. I think throughout the year, other opera houses will be opening very soon, and people will be coming back to the theater with a sense of hope. Uh,
1: she must mean opera houses just in Australia. It was a big month in the land of fancy honorifics. In the UK, conductor Jane Glover has been made a dame in the 2021 New Year's Honors for services to music. Alongside the Birmingham Opera Company's founder and artist, director Graham Vick, who has been knighted, tenor Roberto Alagna became an officier of Légion d'honneur in France, Counter-tenor and conductor Daniel Taylor has been named an officer of the Order of Canada, and in America, Oliver has been named opera podcast royalty.
0: Exit stage right, the author and scholar Florence Badol-Bertrand died in Saint-Etienne on December 26th. In addition to being one of France's top musicologists, Ms. Baudot-Bertrand was one of the founder and artistic director of the musical festival in Vivre-Lignon. A
4: star of La Scala,
0: Liceo, Wiener Staatsoper, and the Deutsche Oper Berlin,
4: Italian tenor Angelo Mori has died at the age of 86. Mori was trained by Marcello del Monaco, the brother of Mario del Monaco, and he made his debut in Rigoletto as the Duke in 1961.
2: Shandor Scholium Notch has died at the age of 79. The Hungarian baritone was esteemed especially as an interpreter of Wagner and was associated with the Bayreuth Festival from 1981 to 2002 for a total of 238 performances.
0: Romanian mezzo-soprano Maria Máxim Nicuara has died at the age of 52 after suffering a fall in May 2020. Nicuara was a member of the Romanian National Opera in Yasi, where she performed supporting roles in many operas.
3: And on this day, January 4th, in 1710 it was the birth of italian composer giovanni battista pergolesi in 1720 it was the birth of german composer johann friedrich Agricola, author of introduction to the art of singing 1822 happy birthday to italian tenor alfredo tedeschi in sicily 1889 it was the first performance of wagner's das reingold in new york city at the met in 1893 it was the birth of french baritone andre bourget in toulouse In 1909, it was the birth of American mezzo-soprano Anna Kaskas. In 1931, American bass baritone Edward Pearson was born in Chicago. In 1937, it was the birth of American soprano Grace Bumbry in St. Louis. 1938 held the first performance of Ysif Birling in America, New York City. And in 1954, it was the birth of German tenor Peter Seifert in Düsseldorf.
1: And that's your two-minute drill.
3: Mm
4: I wonder what the first performance was of UC Burling. I didn't, I just looked at that story right now and I realized that that's a weird item.
2: Everyone loves burling.
4: I know, but where and what? That's such a like not enough detail.
2: <laughs> Could okay. be anywhere. It's a mystery. <laughs> he
4: just came to New York City and like stood on Ellis Island and sang. And he
2: was he was busking, you know. <laughs> exactly.
4: So, that was Grace Bumbrey singing Aida and Amneris from a bizarre I think TV show she did in 1973.
0: It's the Orphan Black version of Aida. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Only Grace Bunbury. <laughs> amazing.
1: Matt, over at the Met, what did the singers know? When did they know it?
0: Yeah, so this is not great on the Met. Their their year end gala, they decided to go with some scabs. <laughs> oh, okay, wait, wait. let's
4: wait. Let's let's back eight, back, eight, back eight, this up eight, a little eight, bit. Eight, okay, okay. Let's let's back this up. We're, we're talking Hestero about musicians. we're talking yes. about the. Yes the musicians who are non-contract, non-union, who played in the online gala. But we're also talking about four singers who were the stars of this gala. Our friend, Matthew Polanzani, um, Javier Camarena, fellow Mexican, uh, Pretty Yende, and Angel Blue. Uh, There has been talk about, you know, how disappointed singers in the singing community are because these four singers agreed to go on
3: in this. Yes. And and my response is I, too, am disappointed if they knew ahead of time that this was going to be the setup. Right. And if if there was a way for them to get out of this and they did not, then, yes, I'm incredibly disappointed. But as someone who is often the last to know about lots of things, that was my first thought is like, I wonder if they even knew. And if they did find out that it was too late, that's 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 a really tough case, too. I definitely, you know, I'm not. I'm not encouraging anybody to walk over picket lines for gigs, but it, it was just something I thought about.
0: But that's a serious act of hardball for the Met in this, in 100%. this orchestral. Or in it really or- is. Yeah. I mean, it.
2: Uh, I mean, I, I know like my social media feed was just like full of vitriol, you know, it, it like people, I mean, the Met, I, I feel like has been mishandling the pandemic since day one. And this just feel, felt like just a, a step like, way over the line, you know? I mean, they really crossed the line four or five months ago, but, like, it's so far over. It it just... uh, It really is, especially in times like this where we need the support of of unions and um, fellow musicians to uh, make sure that people are literally surviving and being able to pay rent in New York City that the Met pulls something like this. It's just completely unacceptable.
3: It's totally heartbreaking. I mean, these are... It's it's tough because there's the Met as an institution, and right. then there are the people that are running the Met. The Met, for all intents and purposes in America, is is like the gold standard. It should be the height of leadership for what mm-hmm. this art form is doing in this country. And then we've got these people that are inside this thing that should be the thing of leadership, not only not leading, not only not taking care of the people that make it the institution that it is, but then going outside of it. I, I saw some stat somewhere where the Met is the only... Uh, The only institution that has not given a dime yet to its uh, rostered orchestral musicians. Don't quote me on that, but it sounds right. Um, And this would
0: have been a really excellent chance to do so as a gesture of good faith. And they kind of it. It seems like I don't I mean, it seems like they're just spitting in the union's faces.
3: Yeah. Yeah. They woke up and
0: chose
2: violence.
3: I don't know how they're going to come back from this. Like, I don't know how they're going to come back from this.
1: And then across town at New York City Opera, Oliver, I detected across a no town.
4: Def- they're in the same
1: <laughs> across
3: <laughs> a sidewalk.
4: I, <laughs> I, I don't know where they're, from. they're, not, they're They don't the have Lincoln a home anymore. anymore. It's, they, it's, it's across
1: not.
2: town if you take like the long way, you know, the scenic route. You walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. You know, it's nice. up to
3: Yonkers,
1: back down.
2: Yeah. No, yeah.
4: where is their home? They don't have a home anymore. Is that what it is? Yeah. That's
1: That's the joke. Um, I. <laughs> Oliver, I noted uh, a, a, a tone of disappointment in your voice about the roster for these. Well, Zuma. I,
4: th- I made the mistake of thinking that these people are going to be singing, but it, I haven't seen this uh, Unballer Mascara. I did. Thing. Yeah, is it singing or is it just talking? It's an ad. Okay.
3: It's so, it's it's a charming ad and it's delightful and it's amazing to see that they got that many people to come and like ask for support. But okay. it's yeah, it's it's two and a half minutes of of all your favorites uh, wearing a mask and then taking it off and smiling and oh, okay. asking <laughs> you to save arts. That's it.
4: Okay, because if they had like Freddie Stada and Carol Van Ness and Martina Arroyo I mean, and do, Samuel but... Raimi like singing into their laptops, that'd be something else. But that's all right. I mean, how many chances does Nyko
1: get? That's my question. Like, they have had many, the many chances. The copy that chances. never
4: dies. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah
3: really. Well, I mean, if the Met can't bounce back from this, there's going to be room for another big dog in town. So That's they can make a couple more of those for. mask ads. Mm-hmm,
0: time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just biding oh. their time.
1: Oliver, <laughs> you <laughs> mentioned this uh, earlier on in the show uh, back at Opera Theater of, of St. Louis, uh, the administrative... Yeah, well, it's fine. We're doing a
4: story about essentially interns. (laughs) But I mean, they want us to know that they are deliberately, you know, hiring people of color to, you know, learn in this fellowship and how to be an arts administrator. And that's what we've been talking about. So this is Mm. this is a step in the right direction. And, you know, when there are not that many jobs right now for anybody, um, these three young people are getting, you know, groomed to, you know, take on some of these roles behind the scenes. And you could one day become Alexander Neath and have like 10 jobs like all over
2: the world. I mean, that really is the sort of like, you know, you're working in the arts field. Your dream is to have yeah. like 12 day jobs and uh, yeah. barely <laughs> scraping through. Uh, it's such a mood.
0: And as long as only three of them are waiting tables, then you're really made. It.
4: <laughs> but maybe this is a Yvette Loyna's initiative. So if it is, good job, Yvette. Muchas gracias.
1: Weston, maybe uh, Bayroy could take a page or two out of OTSL's book. Yeah. So, uh, this is kind of a funny
2: thing because um, uh, the, the tone of this story is just very German. Like, Caterina's just saying, oh, yeah, I'm fine if the government comes in and checks. There's nothing under this rug that you have to worry about. Uh, we should be clear when we say structural issues, we're not talking about the actual building. Uh, we're more talking about, you know, um, how uh, the finances, how um, ticket prices are happening, making sure the government, which is a very large investor in Bayreuth, um, uh, uh, you know, make uh, make sure that things are running smoothly. Um, and because, because you know, they, they own they're one of the largest shareholders of the festival. They own about 29 percent of the shares. Um and they are they recently pledged eighty four million euros or something like that to uh, renovations, um uh, which is a, a big chunk of the one hundred seventy eight million it takes to fix it up. So they're they're very concerned about the investment. And meanwhile, I just know that Katarina's Wagner jeans are just like. <laughs> Tackles raised, ready to run with the prospect of of debt debt from from these national organizations. Just I like mean, her when great, has great the Wagner
0: family ever had problems with <laughs> debt?
2: <laughs> I love all the drama, like even like the minor drama with the Wagner family. I think it should absolutely be a Netflix show, just like the whole dynasty, just like <laughs> Netflix piling is on answer each to other. Succession. Oh, I would Def love Wagner. it. Uh.
1: (laughs) It would be be phenomenal. Almost as phenomenal as uh, Graham Vick getting a knighthood. Listen, listen, being a a UK citizen, I do follow the New Year's honors and the Queen's birthday honors very closely. And and it is a big (laughs) deal. Uh, Graham Vick is such an important stage director. He really, through the Birmingham Opera Company mainstreamed the idea of two things, of community opera, hang on, we're going to get the sharpie up, of community (laughs) opera and of site-specific opera. And the work that he did connecting the people of the city of Birmingham, which is a much maligned city in the UK, connecting the people of the city of Birmingham to take part in opera, to perform an opera, to watch opera is is absolutely unbelievable simultaneously to do it in spaces that were immersive site-specific where the public could really connect to the artists and the art form and it's just so incredible and very much deserved. As Simple a and. native
2: of Birmingham, Alabama, I support <laughs> my sister city's uh, efforts in the opera
1: world. Birmingham, UK, also is sister city to Chicago, a little known fact. And um, mm. Jane Glover so it, becoming a, oh, oh, a dame. On. Well, I was just going to say Jane Glover becoming a dame as well is, is phenomenal. Uh, the first opera that I ever uh, was an AD on at Chicago Opera Theater was conducted by Jane Glover. So I'm, I'm Abduction. Abduction with a You were yep. an AD on that. That was me, baby.
4: That was one of the best things that Cot has ever done. Oh,
1: that, thanks. That that it was so good. quite good. It was yeah. quite good. Yeah. yeah. There's there's some staging in there which I you know I'd, I'd like to take credit for. <laughs> I was talking
4: about this. <laughs> I'm state. out of drink. I can't
3: drink <laughs> anymore. <I'm out> <laughs> so
4: speaking of honorifics, um, it occurred to me that um, George, you probably don't know this, but uh, because you don't go on the internet very much, but um, earlier today I was <laughs> named. That? I was named one to watch by our friends at OSEA in twenty twenty one as a as a content creator or as as they call it, an op an op culture creator for my work on WFMT and on Opera Box Score. And of course Michael Rice jumped in right away and said, What? Why no mention of opera now? <laughs> And also, why no mention of the rest of you guys? Because I couldn't do it without you. Aww. Well, you could, but... But it is getting a bit meta, because, like, we had them on the show to promote them, and now they're promoting us, so, you know, it's like the snake that eats its own... I forget.
0: <laughs> An Ouroboros.
2: That's that's just that's just networking, baby. That's networking. An
0: Ouroboros of networking. <laughs>
3: A it's it's not gonna happen. there was no joke
2: it. there actually i'm sorry you crying. you have
3: to <laughs> i really wanted it to guys i've had good intentions all night and all of my jokes are falling flat and it makes me sad and this is the lady episode and i'm the only actual lady on this panel i really thought i would be on fire tonight
4: yeah we didn't really set we didn't really set up the lady thing at the beginning very well because we were too busy talking about, like, cheese and laid back or whatever that was. <laughs> it's
1: very important. It's crucial. Let's definitely wrap this show up.
2: Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score.
1: Uh, I'm going to go first, actually, because I got two. Ooh. Listening to the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College, Cambridge, is a family tradition in our household. This year, it was a little different great New York Times article on the bizarre curveballs that were thrown to the King's College Choir in the age of COVID. The repertoire was fantastic, beautifully executed, and it's available through the BBC through the end of January. Oliver Camacho, you got a good call or a bad call?
4: Friend of the show, Zachary James, who always seems to be in our good calls. Uh, he His film uh, with pianist Charity Wicks of The Song Cycle by Persis Parshall-Vehar and poet George Clawiter, called The Unity of Men and Love, has been named as an official entrant in the Chicago Indie Film Awards. Congratulations, Zach,
0: and your team.
1: Matt Cummings!
0: Uh, for the next month, OperaVision.eu has a very cool, very visually striking production of Assembly uh, from the Komische Oper Berlin mm. that was directed by Barry Kosky. It's from 2018. Uh, and I just the little teaser video is pretty freaking cool, so check the whole thing out. It's available until February 3rd, um, but who knows with with time zones how that's gonna go. So just try to get on there before that.
1: Weston Williams, as usual, the silent giant. Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs>
3: well in keeping with the uh ladies in leadership terrain that we have for this episode uh, this is actually for me and Matt but I went ahead and took over this time uh <laughs> I wanna I want to celebrate uh Deb Halland, who On one of our last episodes, we didn't get a chance to talk about her. She's the New Mexico Congresswoman. She's going to be the first Native American member of the United States Cabinet in our country's history. She's going to take over Secretary of the Interior. It is really something to have a Laguna Pueblo woman be in charge of how we use our country's land. Mm. So, bravo, ladies. Bravo, America. You got something right for once. Let's keep that (laughs) train going.
1: Finally, we've talked about it on the show before. film called messiah complex uh created through the uh, against the grain company uh with the toronto symphony orchestra it is a version of selections from messiah that's available streaming online now through january 31st that was supposed to wrap up i believe this week there is still time to check out one of the most moving and beautifully shot takes on handel's messiah That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-D-E-L.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Opera Score. a podcast version of our show is available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, and links to this episode's content at operaboxscore.com. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant, Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guests, Cindy Sadler, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera while someone records it and leaks it to the press. We're back with an all-new show next week. You'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more scratching out the zero in 2020 and replacing it with a one. Join us.